English 325. We're in the second uh, textbook now. It's the fattest one, the blue one. It's very big. We're going to read quite a bit out of it, and we'll be in it until the last couple of weeks of the semester. Um, as always, if you're having trouble accessing uh, the readings and stuff, shoot me an email. I'm not a hard-hearted bastard. I'm always happy to help. Um, so let me know what I can do for you, if there's anything I can do to help you along. Um, but uh, I mentioned this before we started recording, but I should mention it now too. People uh, took their midterms on Monday. I'll get those back to you next week. Uh, but I was glad to see that there were no technical difficulties. If there were though for anybody, um, shoot me an email or something because it's gonna be the same, um, same deal for the final. Uh, not the same format necessarily, although there will be short answer questions just like there were here. But it'll be the same deal in terms of being on Blackboard and stuff. So if there's any kind of problems that anybody ran into or anybody found it confusing or something, uh, shoot me an email so that um, I know that in advance and can kind of account for it too. Any first thoughts? You good? All right, let's start it up. I'm gonna share my screen for y'all. Um, James Homer Cooper, The Last of the Mohicans, and then we'll finish with a bit of poetry. Everybody see that? What a beautiful scene. James Fenimore Cooper. This is um, a scene where it's actually a kind of interesting image to interpret, right? Because if you see this big landscape, the thing that kind of looms large over anything is the kind of magnificent grandeur of the landscape. But if you look right in the middle, like middle lower of the image, what do you see there? It's kind of grainy at this resolution, but what is, what's in the middle there? Is it like a group of people? Like a tribe, I'm guessing. Yeah, it's a circle of people, right? And this is kind of, yeah, you're right. That like a good context clues, Jesse, we're talking about Native Americans. So this is kind of like a, you know, a circle of Native American people, right? That kind of um, get overwhelmed by the American landscape here. And that's kind of an interesting way to think through or to think about some of the issues that we're going to put on the table um, this week. So today and on Friday, because what we're talking about this week, this kind of abbreviated week of lectures, is we're talking about um, literature and history around Indian removal, right? So if you know anything about this era of American history, you might know three words, right? You might know Trail of Tears. Everybody heard of that? Yeah, like the forced migration of um, a series of indigenous tribes from the southeastern United States around Georgia into what was then Indian territory and what is now Oklahoma, right? This is the, this is the, the era of Indian removal, the 1830s, 18, late 1820s into the 1830s. So what we're doing this week, and then kind of a little bit next week too, is we're thinking about um, the cultural resonances of Indian removal, right? We're thinking about like um, a novel that deals with Native American topics and the idea of removal. And then on Friday, we're gonna talk more about the political or historical elements of Indian removal. So today, culture, we're gonna read an excerpt from a novel and a short poem. And on Friday, the political and historical, we're gonna read kind of um, a petition to the government and a political tract. Okay, so both the classes this week deal with the idea of Indian removal, this historical era in United States history where indigenous peoples in the southeastern um, 
part of what is now the United States are forcibly removed from their homelands and kind of um, taken west into what is now present day Oklahoma. We're gonna talk about those ideas this week in class, okay? So, but before we get into the guiding questions, I just have one little thing to say about James Fenimore Cooper. Um, anybody ever been to Cooperstown? Anybody grow up in Cooperstown? Sometimes I have somebody who grows up in Cooperstown, which is always really exciting for me. Have you heard of Cooperstown? Baseball Hall of Fame? I've been to like the Hall of Fame. Yeah, been there somebody else mentioned too? Yeah, I have. Allison's been there, Caitlin's been there, Jen's been there. Okay, so you guys have been to Cooperstown. Cooperstown is named after James Fenimore Cooper's father, who owned a shit ton of land in Cooperstown and basically made the town, right? So I like to think, I like to talk about Cooperstown and I like to talk about Cooper because he's very much kind of local author in a very particular way. But the more important thing about James Fenimore Cooper is that he is actually one of the forefathers of a na the national literature of the United States. But what do I mean by that, okay? So he's one of the first professional authors in the United States. Um, prior to James Fenimore Cooper and a couple of other authors in the 1820s and 1830s, very few American authors have their work uh, read and have their work be popular in Europe. And Europe is like the center of culture in this time period. America is kind of a backwater, right? America is kind of this quote unquote uncivilized backwater of Western society. Like if you want to make your name, if you want to be popular, if you want to be like the paragon of culture in the Western world in the 1830s, then your books need to be popular in Europe. And James Fenimore Cooper was one of the first American authors who was very, very popular in Europe. Okay, and he was actually able to live on the earnings that he made from writing, which like we think that's no big deal in our time period, like all writers, all professional writers, all people who write books are people who make their earnings, make their living from writing. That wasn't the case in the 1830s. Most writers, they did it as a hobby or they did it in some other, they were paid in some other way than selling a bunch of books. James Fenimore Cooper was one of the first authors who was able to sell so many of his books that he could really properly be called a professional author. Um, so also in the 1830s, like this idea of a national literature, people in the United States in the 1820s and 1830s are really, really obsessed with the creation of what we might call a national literature. Um, think about The Coquette. The Coquette is a book that's written in America by an American, but we don't really call it an American novel, right? It could be set anywhere. It could be set basically in Europe if we wanted it to be set in Europe. Um, the genre of the coquette is a European genre, right? Um, everything about the coquette, you could just easily transport the entirety of that book and all of the context around it to England. And it could have been an English book as well, right? So that's why only in the 1820s and the 1830s do we see the development of something like an, a national literature, a United States literature that's dealing with national issues, national context, and national histories, right? This only comes about in the 1820s and the 1830s. And prior to the 1820s and 1830s, and even through them too, there's this intense anxiety on the part of Americans 
that they don't have a kind of literary heritage that's truly reflective of their national history, right? Prior to somebody like James Fenimore Cooper, the vast majority of the literature that's written in America is purely derivative of European literatures, right? It, the, the actions that are taking place in these novels could have taken place in Europe. The genre of these novels is derived from European genres, right? All of these things that are written in America are actually basically European in form and in content. So James Fenimore Cooper is one of the first authors who kind of takes truly, distinctly, American issues, American histories, and American contexts, and puts them into literature. So he's why, uh, that's why he is kind of regarded as one of the forefathers of a national literature of the United States. Again, why am I telling you about this? It's gonna actually be very, very important for the questions that we ask of this book and the poem today. In the 1820s and in the 1830s, right around the same time as the removal era, American people generally are very, very anxious about having a history of their own, having a literature of their own, not a history and not a literature that derives from Europe. They want something explicitly and expressly their own, okay? And James Fenimore Cooper, in some senses, provides that. But that's the kind of bridge between the idea of a national literature and James Fenimore Cooper and Indian removal that we'll get to by the end of class today, right? So, okay, what, just to step back and kind of gloss over what I've talked through here. James Fenimore Cooper, one of the first professional American authors, that means that he actually made money writing and selling books and he made his living doing just that. Not only is he one of the first professional American authors, he's one of the forefathers of what we might call an American national literature. So a literature that deals very forthrightly and directly with American histories, American contexts, and American issues. Why is that important in the 1830s? It's important that a national literature is developing in the 1830s because American people are highly anxious about having their own history and having their own literature. Having a history and a literature that isn't a derivative of Europe but having something distinctly their own, right? That's kind of hard for us to imagine now, like we've exported American culture all throughout the globe, like there's a McDonald's basically in Antarctica, right? Like American culture is everywhere. So it's really hard for us as 21st century Americans to kind of think about how, how our forebears two and a half centuries ago could have been anxious about like, what does it mean to be an American? Like, what is our history? What is our literary heritage? Like, we know our history, we know our literary heritage now, it's very clear to us. But at the beginning of the nation, they were still searching for that, right? Like, when you declare your independence from Great Britain, it's not as if you get your own kind of history and you get your own literature like that. It's like you sign the Declaration of Independence and all of a sudden America means something. No, you actually have to take decades and decades and decades to build up that culture to build up that distinct and individual history. That takes work, that takes time. And Americans in this time period are intensely anxious about that issue. What does it mean to be American? What's American about American literature? 
And Cooper is one of the first people who begins to respond to that. And one of the main ways that he responds to that is that he includes in his books depictions of Native people. Okay, and that's our segue into what we want to talk about today. One of the ways in which James Fenner Cooper begins to kind of um, uh, develop a distinctly American national literature is that he talks a lot about Native Americans. And there's a reason for that. And by the end of class today, we're going to come to an understanding of that reason. Does that make sense? Questions about that idea? Big idea that we're going to kind of particularize in the reading for today. Okay. So first question I ask you guys, why oh, Cooper? What a man. Look at him. Piercing eyes. Why does Cooper begin with an extended description of the American landscape? Okay. Why does he do this at the beginning of what we read? So I'll read this off and we can talk a little bit about whether this um, description seems real or whether it seems kind of fantastic and fanciful. It says, the vast canopy of woods spread itself to the margin of the river, overhanging the water and shadowing its dark glassy current with a deeper hue. The rays of the sun were beginning to grow less fierce and the intense heat of the day was lessened as the cooler vapors of the springs, uh, springs and fountains rose above their leafy beds and rested in the atmosphere. Still that breathing silence, which marks the drowsy sultriness of an American landscape in July, pervaded the secluded spot interrupted only by the low voices of the men in question, an occasional and lazy tap of a, of a reviving woodpecker, the discordant cry of some gaudy jay, or a swelling on the ear from the dull roar of a distant waterfall. So the first question I asked you guys on the guiding questions, it kind of goes into the question that's at the top of this page is, is this a kind of realistic description or is it a more creative or fanciful one? And how do we know? So that's the first question I'm asking all of you. Is it a real, realistic description or more of a fancy one? And how do we know? Yeah, Alexandra in the, in the chat says that it's fanciful. Can we kind of add on to that? It's creative, right? It's not just a kind of objective accounting of the landscape. How do we know it's not just an objective accounting of the landscape? Yeah, whimsical is an interesting way of putting it too. How do we know? Like what's included in this language that gives us a sense that it's kind of more creative than real? Either in how it's written or what is being said. Yeah, the intense detail, right? Ali is mentioning in the chat, the intense detail that's provided, but what else? What about the details? Who is like given prominence? Who is act having actions? Who's taking actions, right? Is there personification? Is there personification in this description of the landscape? Are inanimate or non-human objects being given like actions and human characteristics? What do you think? 
is this romanticized? Is it fanciful? Is it creative or is it realistic and why? I think that it's kind of like realistically creative because I feel like the way people see like landscapes and stuff is very intense sometimes. Like I feel like humans just have like some sort of connection with nature and I feel like this kind of shows it. Like, yes, it is creative, but I also feel like the description, it's just kind of exaggerating a bit. And so it's not that it's like mystical, if that, it's just that it's more exaggerated than the normal I would see it. Great, yeah, this is exactly how I want to think about this. This is exactly right. There's an exaggeration to the landscape, right? It's basically the um, equivalent in words of the picture on the title page, right? There's a grandeur, there's an exaggeration to the landscape here, right? It's not necessarily like mystical, no, it's not like magical, it's not otherworldly, there's no spirits or nymphs, right? Nymphs kind of uh, running around, right? That's not it, but it's not kind of purely objective either. There's something exaggerated about the nature of the description of this landscape, right? In terms of the words, right, he's very flowery in the way that he describes the landscape, but also in how, like, we're really minutely focused on these particular details, right? The lazy tap of the bird, the discordant cry of the jay, right? The dull roar of the distant waterfall. Every little, every little thing we can hear or see kind of pops with more intensity than we would otherwise give it, right? It's almost as if this is a real landscape with a kind of filter over it, okay? Um, Instagram, right? We take a picture of a beautiful scene outside our window, right? We're stuck in our dorm where we've been locked in. We look out our window, we take a picture of a beautiful scene. It's a little drab, it's a little dreary, it's a very rainy day, but then we can kind of fiddle with the filters, right? We can enhance the reds, we can brighten the greens, we can kind of create an effect where we have the sun dappled through the frame, or we can have the kind of beams of light really radiate out, right? We can do all these little things. It doesn't mean that the picture isn't real, right? The image is real, the scene is still there, right? You saw what you saw in the lens of the camera, but what you've done as the author is just tweak it just exaggerate little things, right? Either through the language or through the details that you are deciding to emphasize, right? So yeah, here we have a kind of real description of the American landscape, but one that's exaggerated. One that kind of takes on a certain grandeur, right? A certain kind of power. Not necessarily something that's mystical, like Jesse said, but something that has power and grandeur, right? something almost heroic and elevated, right? Through the details, through all of the kind of little, little things that Cooper is asking us to pay inordinate attention to. You'll notice that there are actually two men in this frame, right? There are two men in this paragraph, but just like with the image on our title page, the people in this frame are essentially inconsequential. Right, the, the landscape kind of overwhelms them. Just like in this image on the title frame, 
the landscape overwhelms that circle of Native men, so too in this paragraph, the kind of exaggerated heroic grandeur of the landscape exaggerates the two men, who you can only see in this paragraph through one little portion of a sentence by the low voices of the men in question, right? So the people become really, really diminished, the landscape becomes elevated and exaggerated. Okay, so why might Cooper want to do that? Why might Cooper want to start his um, novel or the portion of the novel with a kind of extended, exaggerated description of the landscape? Why, what might he be suggesting? About the importance of the landscape to the story of the novel itself. I feel like he's suggesting like how beautiful it was to them because like as you said before that like they wanted to find like their own history and like their own literature like aside from like Europeans and like I feel like as he exaggerates it like it shows like the beauty of it aside from other opinions of it I guess. Yeah Serena precisely right this has everything to do with the idea that we started class with the idea that authors from this time period and Americans more generally wanted to figure out what was distinctively American, right? And they wanted to understand and um, express the importance of distinctly American scenes. And so Serena, we can talk about this in terms of beauty, but we can also just talk about it in more simpler tones in terms of like the emphasis that, the, that Cooper provides to the landscape. What he's suggesting is that the landscape actually matters here that the fact that this is an American landscape actually matters to what's happening in the book, right? Cooper is making the argument that the shit that happens in the book can only happen in America. And the way that he's making that argument is he's putting right in front of our face in the most exaggerated way possible, right in front of our face. He's putting the landscape in front of our face in the most exaggerated and grand way possible. The suggestion there is that there's actually something important about America to the book. There's something distinctively American about the scenes that the book describes. So by describing the landscape in this way, he's suggesting that this scene is distinctively American, right? There's something grand, exaggerated, and heroic about the landscape. And this scene that um, the novel describes can only happen in this place. So yeah, as Serena said, it has everything to do with this desire to position the things that are happening in the novel in a discrete place in America, right? That's why he's taking so much time to describe the landscape, right? Think again in contrast to The Coquette, where there's really no descriptions of the landscape. There's no descriptions of like the places that the characters inhabit. They could be in England right? Just as well. I mean, there's a couple of discussions in the novel about like the revolution, but the novel is not about that, right? It could happen anywhere. This book has to happen here. That's what this description of the landscape is suggesting to us. This book has to happen here. And there's an importance to that. 
That's why he begins with this extended description that we can describe as heroic or exaggerated or grand. We can also say that it's romanticized. And that's a word that we'll come back to in a couple of weeks, that the description here is romanticized. And what I mean by romanticized is exactly what I meant when I said that there's a filter over reality. There's a real landscape here, but Cooper is kind of putting that Instagram filter over it. He's kind of shading out the bad parts and he's emphasizing the good, right? That's what we do on our Instagram account. Even in the midst of the pandemic, we're having, we're living our best lives on Instagram, right? Even in the midst of that. Okay, any questions about this? Okay, let's move on. So we've set the stage here, we've set the scene. We're in America, this can only happen in America. And then we get a description, characterization of the two main characters of the excerpt of the novel that we read. Chingachgook, who is a native character, and Hawkeye, who is not native, but is interesting. We have to talk about why and what his characterization is doing. So Cooper describes these two characters. He says, while one of these loiterers showed the red skin and wild accoutrements of a native of the woods, the other exhibited through the mask of his rude and nearly savage equipments, the brighter though sunburnt and long faded complexion of one who might claim descent from a European parentage. So Cooper tells us here that Chingachgook is a native of the woods. He's indigenous, he's a Native American. And you can see that by his red skin and his wild accoutrements. What are wild accoutrements? Anybody know that term, accoutrements? Or can you pick it up from context? No, accoutrements means basically what you're wearing. Okay, so what would it mean to have wild accoutrements? Would it be like different from what he's seen before? He's just like not used to what they're wearing? Potentially, it's exotic, it's strange, it's different, right? In the context of a native person, wild accoutrements would be like not European accoutrements, right? Okay, and we'll go into that in more detail in the next passage too. So we have Chingachgook, who's native, right? And we have Hawkeye, who claims descent from European parentage, but he's not totally white, it seems like, right? He has um, a sunburnt and long faded complexion. And he also has rude and nearly savage equipments, which is just another word for accoutrements here, right? So we have Chingachgook, who's native, and we have Hawkeye, who's a white man, but in what he wears and how he looks, he seems to be kind of native as well, right? And I wanna kind of think through that idea a little bit more in the next passage, right? So we have Chingachgook, who's a native man, and we have Hawkeye, who is biologically white, right? He's from European heritage, but the way that he looks and the things that he wears seem to give him um, a sense of nativeness as well. He seems almost nearly savage. So I'm gonna talk a little bit more through that in the second passage. So this is a description of Hawkeye, okay? He wore a hunting shirt of forest green, fringed with faded yellow, and a summer cap 
of skins which had been shorn of their fur. He also bore a knife and a girdle of wampum. What's wampum? Jennifer, you got this. I know Brendan has this. If you think back to 256, you remember what wampum is? Way back. Any recollection? Wampum are carved shell beads, right? They are things that are typically understood as... Oh, the... Yeah, go oh, ahead. sorry. Yeah, go ahead, Jen. Like the, the bracelets that like tell a story by like how the beads placed. Yeah, good, exactly. So if you look at the image that's on this slide of the uh, a beautiful Daniel Day-Lewis from the uh, filmic adaptation of this novel, right? You can see that the thing that's strapped over his chest looks like a belt, right, or a sash. And it's actually made of woven beads. This is wampum, okay, woven beads. Okay, that's wampum, it's native, right? It's a native accoutrement. So Hawkeye is a white man, but he's, he has a, a knife in a girdle of wampum, like that which confined the scanty garments of the Indian, but no tomahawk. His moccasins were ornamented after the gay fashion of the natives, while the only part of his underdress, which appeared below the hunting frock, was a pair of buckskin leggings that laced at the sides and were gartered above the knees with the sinews of a deer. So what does Hawkeye wear and what does he look like? You can kind of use the Daniel Day-Lewis image as a reference here. What does Hawkeye wear and what does he look like? What kind of stuff is he wearing? He's wearing like more native clothes, but you can tell that he's not native just by his complexion and everything. Like in the picture, it's the same concept. Yeah. Exactly, right? So we know that Hawkeye is not native, right? He has European heritage. He's sunburnt, so he looks a little quote unquote more red than he would white, right? But the things that he's wearing are coded as Native American, right? He wears wampum. He doesn't have a tomahawk, but he wears wampum. He has moccasins on. He has buckskin leggings that were laced up with the sinews of a deer, right? These are not European articles of clothing. These are not colonial American articles of clothing. These are native articles of clothing. So what sense are we being given of Hawkeye in terms of his characterization? What might we say about Hawkeye in terms of his whiteness and his nativeness? How might we characterize this character of Hawkeye? Just literally. Hawkeye is a white guy who what? What does he wear? Does he wear European clothes or does he wear something else? How would we characterize Hawkeye?
Sometimes when I ask really simple questions, those are the times when no one wants to answer. I'm not asking a kind of interpretive question here. I'm literally asking what does Hawkeye look like to us on the page? Um, I would say that he's um, trying to come across as, an, as a native, even though he's a white European. Great, perfect, genie, absolutely. So the term we might use here is that Hawkeye is doing something like playing India, okay? He is a person of European parentage, but he's wearing the trappings of nativeness. He's taken on all of the trappings of nativeness. He's wearing the, the wampum, he's wearing the moccasins, right? So he's a person who is white, biologically. His parentage is white, but he's taking on, he's appropriating the trappings of nativeness, okay? Why is that important? Um, we get to the answer of why that's important kind of through the last passage from this slide. So Chingachgook, the native uh, person in the scene is talking. He says, where the blossoms of those summers fallen one by one, so all of my family departed, each in his turn to the land of spirits. I am on the hilltop and must go down into the valley. And when Uncas follows in my footsteps, that's his son, there will no longer be any of the blood of the Sagamores, for my boy is the last of the Mohicans. So what is Chingachgook saying here about the future of his tribe? Just literally, what is he saying about the future of his tribe? The bloodline's gonna like stop. Yeah, exactly. He's saying that there are gonna be no more native people. He's saying that his son Uncas is the last of the Mohicans. There will be no more native people, right? Okay. If the logic of the novel is that within a couple of generations, there are going to be no more native people, then the people who are going to live on are people like Hawkeye, right? So the elements of nativeness that are going to be with us in a couple of generations are not going to be actual native people. They're just going to be the trappings of native people um, on otherwise white settlers. Okay. So instead of actually existing native people being on the American landscape anymore within a couple of generations, the novel is telling us that native traditions, native cultural practices, native clothing, native ways of thinking, they're not going to be embedded in native people anymore, but they're going to be taken up by whites who are playing Indian, like Hawkeye. All of the actual native people are going to die off. What's going to be left of Native American traditions and Native American culture is going to be taken by people like Hawkeye. Okay? That's what the novel is telling us at this moment, is that someone like Hawkeye is going to be the one to carry forward native traditions and native practices when all of the actual native people have died off. Okay. So how does that connect to the ideas that we started class with? The idea that Americans in the time when Cooper is writing are very anxious about what makes them distinctively American. They're very anxious to find their own national history. They're very anxious to find their own national character. 
Does anybody want to speculate on the connection between those two things? Hawkeye is taking up the trappings of nativeness. He's wearing native clothes, and by implication, he's kind of um, thinking like a native person. He's taking up the practices and the cultures of native people, but actual native people are going to die off. How does that connect to the idea of national anxiety over an American history or an American literature or a distinctly American culture? Anybody want to speculate on that? What's the connection between those two things? I feel like it's because if he carries on like native traditions and stuff, like he's making it so that Americans do have a history to find so that like, since all the natives died off, like if nobody else carried that tradition forward, that would mean that it's completely gone and their history is gone. And that if people do carry it on just like he does, that they will find their own history and they'll become like prominent. Okay. Yeah, Serena, this is exactly, this is exactly it. Okay, just to rehearse that point. It's really complicated, but it's really important. Okay, just to rehearse this point that Serena is really ably bringing us to. In the 1820s and the 1830s, um, white American people are searching for a history of their own, because they can no longer claim European history is theirs. They've made a firm break from Europe, right? They've declared their independence, okay? So in the 1820s and the 1830s, white Americans are desperate to find a history that they can claim as their own, but they can't look back to England, right? They've firmly broken from that past. So they need another past to claim. They need another set of cultural traditions to claim as their own and to make distinctively American. So who do they turn to? They turn to natives. They turn to the indigenous peoples of the Americas. And they take up, like Hawkeye does, they take up the trappings of nativeness. They wear the clothes. They um, assimilate the histories and the cultural practices, right? They take all of the native things from the native people and make them their own just as all of the actual native people like Chingachgook and Uncas die off, right? So what we might think of is Hawkeye as the true American, the first independent, individual, distinctive American. Why? Because he takes biologically from Europe, he is a white man, but culturally and in terms of his history, he takes from native peoples. So we have on the one hand, Europe, on the other hand, America, right? Native America. If we synthesize those two things, biological Europeanness and cultural Native Americanness, and we bring them together, the idea is that's what's distinctively American. Okay? If I had a blackboard, I would write it up for you. We take biological Europeanness, cultural and historical nativeness and we bring them together. And when we bring them together, that's American. Okay, that's a big idea that we get from this novel, but that we just also get from the historical context of this period, is that white Americans in this time period, again, just to rehearse it, this big idea, white Americans in this time period, they are desperately searching for a history and a culture of their own. They can no longer claim European history and they can no longer claim European culture. 
because they've made a break from it. So what do they do? They turn to native people and they take the history and the culture of native people, they appropriate it, assimilate it. And then once, um, once native peoples themselves are gone, they can be the true inheritors of that past. Okay? That's what the American is. That's what the American becomes in this time period. It's a biological European, but culturally and historically native. You put those two things together, that's the American. That's the true American. And that is exemplified through the character of Hawkeye. Okay? So we no longer have actually existing native people, right? All the native people are gone. But what's left is all of the trappings of nativeness. And all of those things that are left, white Americans like Hawkeye, they take them, they assimilate and appropriate them, they wear them literally on their body, and in assimilating and appropriating those characteristics, they become distinctively American, right? White Americans are searching around for a history. They're searching around for a culture. They can't find one. And so what they decide to do is they decide to take native culture as their own. Why do they do this? They're anxious about their own history. They're anxious about their own past. But more than this, they're anxious about their justifications to the lands that they inhabit. This is the second part that's really important. Nate, white American people, they take on the trappings of native history and native culture because they're trying to find a distinctively American history. They need a distinctively American history because they have to justify their claims to the lands that they now inhabit. They can't justify those claims anymore through colonial Britain because they've made a clear break from colonial Britain. They can't justify them anymore through Europe. They've made a clear break from Europe. So how do they justify the claims to the lands that they inhabit? They take on the history of native peoples and they justify their claims by appropriating and assimilating native histories and native cultures. That is a huge idea that you'll notice when the guiding questions are posted for Friday, that we're actually gonna begin class on Friday rehearsing. Okay, so if you haven't quite assimilated that idea yet or have it kind of clearly in your notes, there's gonna be another opportunity to think through it um, in a couple of days, right? But just, we only have about five minutes left, so I wanna to transition to this poem because I think this poem is a really nice demonstration of this process in action. Taking native things, cultures and histories leaving all the native people behind, okay? I wanna just read just a portion of this poem, not even the whole thing, just a little, little bit. Oof, I gotta go to another slide, sorry. Just a portion of it, not even the whole thing, just a bit of it to um, show you what's going on here. End this slideshow. Yeah. Okay, I wanna share this with you, this poem. Uh, all right, I don't want to read the whole thing. We don't have time, but I just want to read, let's say, the first stanza. You say they all have passed away, the native people, that noble race and brave, that their light canoes have vanished from off the crested wave. 
That mid the forest where they roam, there rings no hunter shout, but their name is on your waters. Ye may not wash it out. I'll read one more stanza and we can talk about again how this poem demonstrates the argument or the idea that we just talked through. Tis where Ontario's billow like ocean surge is curled, where strong Niagara's thunder wake the echo of the world, where red Missouri bringeth rich tribute from the west, and Rappahannock sweetly sleeps on green Virginia's breast. What is this poem arguing? This poem is saying that native people, that noble race and brave, have all passed away. But what's left of native people on the American landscape? What is this poem saying? What's left of native people on the American landscape? What's still there? What can't be washed out? Is it the names? Literally the names of the places on the landscape. Anybody grow up in a town that's a native word? I grew up in the town of Onondaga. That's a native word. Ontario is a native word. Niagara is a native word. Missouri is a native word. Rappahannock is a native word. Anybody, anybody grow up in a town where you grew up that was a native, a native word? Surprising. Usually at least there's a couple of people, although this is a smaller group than usual, right? But I grew up in the town of Onondaga. That's a native word. So the argument of the poem is that even though native peoples have passed away, even though they are extinct, they are still on our landscape through their names, okay? The names of these places still evidence the native presence on the landscape. Okay, our last minute. How does that connect to the idea that we've been talking through? The idea that as white Americans, we take elements of nativeness as our own even as native peoples become extinct in order to justify our claims to the land. How does this poem demonstrate that idea? Native people are gone, but we still call our towns and rivers and our mountains after the native people who were once there. Why do we do that? It's because we want to place our history on this land in a very, very deep past in order to justify our claims to it. That's one way to read this poem, right? Is the idea that the names are still on the landscape. We can't wash them out. That testifies to the enduring presence of native peoples on the land. But we've taken those names and we've used them for our own purposes. And the purpose that we've used them for is that they justify our claims to this place. Again, we can't justify our claim to this place by appealing to Europe or to England anymore. We have to find a different way. So like Hawkeye, we have to take up the trappings of nativeness. We have to take up native names. That's what allows us to justify our claims to the land. Okay. Again, this is, we're out of time, but we're gonna start again with this on Friday. So if you still are kind of working through this idea a little bit, um, pop in on Friday or listen to the podcast on Friday and we'll go over it again. All right, I'll let you all go, but if you have questions, I'll stick around for a couple of minutes too. Good to see you all, I hope you're doing well. Talk to you soon, bye.